Wonderful singing tonight. If you'd open your Bibles to Micah chapter 6, please. Micah chapter 6. We come tonight to probably the most famous verse in the book of Micah, at least one of them. There are only a handful of them that are famous. This is certainly one. Beginning at verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And here's the verse. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for this great book of Micah, Lord. We know this world needs this book. There are political and religious leaders that need to see clearly what this book warns, what it says. We pray that you would allow us tonight to understand this passage and the way you've designed it to be understood. And we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Micah 6.8 is probably one of the most quoted verses out of the Old Testament. It's also one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted verses in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most dangerous misuse of the verse is to say that this is the gospel or the essence of the gospel. It is not that at all. This is not a message aimed at lost people. This is a message aimed straight at God's people. We can certainly see that in chapter 6 because you'll notice in verse 3 the text says, my people. You'll notice again in verse 5 the text says, my people. You'll notice down in verse 9 which follows verse 8 there. And here, O tribe, talking about the tribe of Israel. And then again at the end of verse 16, my people. It's pretty obvious this is not addressed to the lost world. This is addressed to the people of God. Arnold Gabeline rightly said, only a blind leader of the blind can say that this verse is the gospel. And that faith in the deity of Christ and his atoning ever-blessed work on the cross is not needed. And there are those that actually approach it that way. Liberals approach it that way. They use this to say, well, here's the essence of working out the gospel in your life. It is not that. This is also not some verse to be used for political rallies and a verse for candidates to promote as a successful political career. Back in January of 1977 at the presidential inauguration of Jimmy Carter, he actually quoted this verse, Micah 6.8, in his speech to promote human rights agenda. Although certainly we could say there ought to be an application that perhaps may be made from this, this passage is not discussing that at all. This passage was given by Micah to God's people who were on the verge of experiencing the judgment of God. The passage is a rebuke to the nation Israel because it shows her clearly what she was not doing. It shows her clearly what she was doing. It was bringing her to the chastisement of God. You'll recall last week, God said, I have a legal case against my own people. I'm calling the mountains and hills to testify against my own people. Now, this passage was given by Micah to God's people that were on the verge of experiencing the judgment of God. And in the previous chapters, Micah has laid out the fact God's angry with you. God is angry with you. You're the people of God. He's about to unleash calamity on you. You've been involved in unclean things that are bringing you to destruction. 
You're being led by a bunch of phony political and religious leaders that are telling you you're at peace with God. They're telling you you're never going to experience any calamity or negatives from the Lord, and you're just okay with God. So what God describes in verse 8 were the exact things the leaders and the people were not doing. The issue here, according to verse 7, are the rebellious acts and the sins that they were committed. So when Micah writes chapter 6, God says, I have a serious case against my people. I've done so much for my people. I've given them so much, and they still don't want to seem to obey me. They don't want to seem to take my word and apply it to various situations where they need to be applying it. In an amazing grace we saw last time, God asked them two questions. What have I ever done to have you treat me so pathetically? And how have I wearied you to the point that you've treated me so apathetically? After God asked them the question, he said, you answer me. You answer me. Now Micah, in these important verses, understands what God wants. He understands what the people need. If they're going to regain a relationship with God in which he would put a halt to the judgment and the chastisement. Micah is not like some phony religious and political leaders that were telling the people, you're just fine. You don't have to worry about anything. You're the people of God. You're at peace with God. Micah says, I'll tell you what you need to do if you want to have a good relationship with God once more. And it's clear from what we're about to look at here in these verses that the people were really caught up in formal religion. I mean, they had religious formality that was second to none. The temple was standing. People were going through all kinds of religious motions. They're taking their offerings. They're going through rituals. They're making religious professions. We could say they're going there and reciting their catechism. And Micah says, you have a real problem. Your religion isn't cutting it. Your problem's your heart. You have a big sin problem, and your religious rituals aren't going to resolve it. So what Micah does here is he specifically points out exactly what God wants his people to do in order to restore a fractured relationship with him that made him angry. And understand this in the context. This is so important because liberals just don't see this. They use this as a promotion of this is how you can really be saved. You treat your neighbor like this, and you're going to end up going to heaven. This text is aimed at God's people who are already God's people. This is not a text to challenge the lost world how they should earn their way to heaven. It's not doing that at all. This is a text that's aimed at people that were already in a covenant relationship with God. And when Micah will say to these people, you need to have a major change of heart and you need to think differently and act differently in regard to the word of God because you aren't doing it right now. And that's what's bringing you to judgment. Now, the way Micah is going to reveal this truth and the way he's going to drive home this truth is by asking some questions in order to make a profound point. His primary point is to bring out exactly what God expected those people to do right now. You need to make this change right now. And he asks questions to contrast what they're thinking versus what God's going to say. Now, there are two simple parts to this. You have 
I would call the questions of the people, verses 6 to 7. And Mike is going to kind of present the questions that the people were asking. Notice verse 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, people are in the court of God, they realize they're in the court of God. They realize God has indicted them. He's laid out his case against them in the previous chapters. Then he says to them, you start answering me. You start answering me. And there are seven questions Micah asked, which represents how these people thought. And that's why he's asking these questions. This is how these people thought. And the first one is, with what shall I come to the Lord? Now, that's a legitimate question, really. And what that question shows us is these people that are in rebellion, they've got a religious itch to them. I mean, when people are not right with the Lord, deep down inside, they know they're not right with the Lord. People that aren't in fellowship with God, they sense it. They see it. They have a, as it were, a knowledge of it. Now, they may talk like they're really on track. I mean, they may talk like they're really on track, but they aren't. And that's what this sounds like. I mean, Micah is saying, you're heading to the judgment of God. God has done all this stuff for you. Well, then how do we get back into a good relationship with God? It's a good question to ask, a good place to begin. I mean, what must happen to get back into a good relationship with God? Something has to happen. They're thinking that way because we aren't in a good relationship with God. He's threatening us with judgment and chastisement. What exactly do we need to do to restore the relationship with the Lord? How are we going to fix this? We've made a real mess of things in our relationship with God. So how do we get back on track again if we just started going to the temple more? If we just showed up at more services, would that do it? If we just said we're going to go to church more, would that do it? Would that get us back on the good side of God? Now the things that they list here to offer to do, man, I'm telling you, as you're going to see them, there's some good works here. There's a lot of religious ritual stuff here. Which brings us to the second question. Shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down? That's what he says in verse 6. And bow myself before the God on high? They realize they're lacking something. So what if we go to church and we bow down? What if we go to the temple and bow down? What if we do something physically? What if we knelt down? In fact, what if we knelt down and actually admitted in our confession that he's the God on high. He's the high God. He's the ultimate God. He's the sublime God. I mean, what if we were to go to worship and we just knelt down and admitted that? What if we went there and recited the Apostles' Creed? We all stand there or kneel down and we agree to it. We all would admit, yeah, that's what we believe. So if we bow down at the temple, would that solve our problem? Would God stop being angry with us if we kneel down on a kneeling bench? What if I eat fish on Friday? Don't eat any other meat, I'll eat fish. What if I won't eat food on Lent? What if I take a piece of charcoal, mark it on my forehead, and tell people it really indicates I'm sorry for my sin? What if I buy some rosary beads? Yeah, yeah, I'll get some good rosary beads, and we'll just go and run our hands through the rosary beads. Will that solve the problem? 
Let's say we go to a prayer meeting and even though we're living in total rebellion against the word of God, we go to a prayer meeting. And we're living in the rebellion against the Lord, but we'll duck into prayer meeting and we'll bow down before the Lord, we'll bow our heads in prayer, will that solve it? When Jesus was here, the Pharisees were known for their public prayers. Would that do it? I'll stand up before the people and pray. If we start going to prayer meeting and we pray, will that get us back in good standing with God? That's what they're asking. Shall I go before the Lord and bow down myself? Third question, what if I go to the Lord and offer burnt offerings? Verse 6, shall I come to him with burnt offerings? I suspect that is due to the fact that he brought up the fact that God was looking out for them in that Balak Balaam episode that we discussed when we were together last Sunday night, because it's pretty clear that Balaam built seven altars. You can read that in Numbers chapter 23. In fact, let's go back to Numbers. Let me just show you that from chapter 23, the first three verses of Numbers chapter 23, because I'm probably thinking that that's what triggered them coming up with this on the list. In Numbers chapter 23, And you'll notice what we read in verse 1 of Numbers 23. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand before your burnt offering and I'll go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I'll tell you. So he went to a bare hill. So I'm thinking as Micah had laid out how God had watched over them in that Balak Balaam episode, they probably said, hey, we remember that story. We remember Bible verses. We remember that story. They remember, you know, he built a bunch of altars had a bunch of burnt offerings. What if we do that? What if we come with them with a bunch of burnt offerings? The law of the burnt offering is found in Leviticus 1. The goal of the burnt offering was to be accepted before the Lord and to be pleasing to the Lord. And a person was to take his offering from his herd and flock or bird and offer it to the Lord. So the people are thinking, well, okay, God's angry with us. You're telling us he's mad at us. You're telling us he's about to chastise us. So what if we go ahead and, yes, we're not acting right and we're not thinking right we're not really serious about the word of god but let's go make the offerings let's go give a bunch of burnt offerings if we just start taking a bunch of burnt offerings to the lord will that solve the relationship problem what they're really asking here would that get god to turn away from doing negative things toward us somebody else has a question number four shall i come to the lord and offer yearling calves Verse 6, what about yearling calves? I'll offer burnt offerings with yearling calves. A yearling calf was a valuable commodity. According to Leviticus chapter 9, a calf could be offered as a sin offering if it was without defect. According to Leviticus 9, a calf could be one year old. Now in the list of possibilities for a sin offering, you have various options. You could offer a calf, a bull, a goat, a ram, or a lamb. A year-old calf would be one of the most valuable kind of offerings that you could offer. So what this means is the people were thinking, God's angry with us, so what if we take God an offering that's some value? It's really something to us that would be valuable in this economy and in this culture. What if I take a young calf that would be probably one of the most valuable animals that we could have, and we offer that to the Lord, would that stop him from being angry with us? What if we took money and went to the church and just paid to have a bunch of candles lit? 
Would that solve it? It's hard to imagine that someone could actually think they could take care of their rebellion and sin problem by just doing this stuff, but that's how religious people think when they don't want to face their sin. They like the religion. They don't want to face their sin. So the fifth question is, what if we offered thousands of rams? That would probably cause God to delight in us. He says in verse 7, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? We're talking big numbers here. Now these religious leaders really hawked money. So you'll recall back in chapter 3, verse 11, they claimed that because some of these people were giving substantial sums of money. The Lord was surely in their midst. There would be no calamity there. So, I mean, the religious leaders had programmed the people to think, if you're offering big numbers of stuff, you're delighting God. So they're just kind of a byproduct of what was being taught, as it were, in their pulpit. That word delight means God delights in something to the point that he favors it, that he wants to bless it again. So they're basically saying, what Micah is doing is he's saying, these people are asking, well, if we were to bring something in just a massive numbers, massive numbers of thousands of rams, we were to bring them and offer them to the Lord, would that then get God back on our side? In Leviticus 5, if a person acted unfaithfully against the Lord, a ram offering could be offered specifically if it were an unintentional sin. The problem is these people were sinning intentionally against God many, many, many times. They weren't even sorry for the sin. They just want out of the jam. That's what they want. This is like a foxhole conversion. They want to get out of the pressure of the destruction. And certainly they could go back and say, you know, when Solomon was king over Israel and he dedicated the temple. Man, oh man, he actually sacrificed 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep in that temple dedication. So maybe we could play on that, and maybe we could take thousands of rams, and we could appease the anger of God. So Micah is asking, well, I wonder if we can do that. Or these people are asking that. Micah speaking on behalf of these people. I wonder if we can do that. I wonder if we could regain the favor of God if we just start taking massive numbers of things and sacrificing can you visualize this? Somebody living in sin, ducking into church, bringing thousands of dollars of offerings, giving it and saying, oh, that'll make it right with God. It'll make it all better. I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I'll still sin up the storm the way I sinned before I even went to the service. But I'll go into the service and I'll give big, big dollars. And that has actually happened before where people have gone thinking, well, I'll just give huge sums of money and I'm going to be okay. What if I run there every day? I'll go there every day, 100 times a month. I'll run back and forth to church a hundred times a month. Will that do it? Will that solve my issue with God? He won't be mad. And then they bump it up with question number six. What if we offer 10,000 rivers of oil? Which is even impossible, but the text says in 10,000 rivers of oil. Could we make God happy if we had so much oil that we collected from the people that we go out there can make rivers out of it? Now, according to Leviticus, chapter 2, a grain offering was to have oil poured on it. 
the oil was added to a lot of the offerings. You mixed the oil in with the offerings. So Micah is basically saying, well, what if we bring oil and the people bring oil that pour out a thousand rivers of oil? Would that cause God to delight in us again? I mean, would that cause God to say, okay, it's all good. Chastisement goes away. And then they really get bizarre with question number seven. What if we offer our firstborn for our rebellious acts and sins? I mean, we're talking major sacrifice here. Verse seven, shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is a bizarre proposal, but this does show you how these people think, doesn't it? They don't think about what pleases the Lord they're just trying to figure out something they can do in the world of religion that will get them off the hook. And this shows you how idolatrous they had become. This is a bizarre proposal. God required the firstborn be dedicated to him, not slaughtered. You didn't take your children and slaughter them. In fact, there are multiple passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that forbid this. This is a satanic, demonic thing. This is listed in a context in Leviticus 18 with the most perverted sins that you can ever imagine or list. And God certainly was not in favor of this. But this shows you the minds of these people. They're sitting there thinking, well, maybe if we were willing to sacrifice our own child, our own firstborn child, then maybe we could just kind of get the heat off of us and that would take care of the sin problem of our own soul. There are people who think like that. I'm going to get involved in religious stuff, boy. That'll solve my problem. I'll get in the action. I'll make the sacrifices. And that's going to get me back in the good graces of God. Which brings Micah to the second part, the answers from God in verse 8, in one of the most powerful verses of the book. In verse 8, Micah says, God's told you what's good. He has pinpointed your sin. He has pointed out your sin. You don't do a thing about it. He has told you multiple times in multiple passages what he expects of you in obeying him and how he expects you to relate to your other family members that are in the Lord, as it would be, in the commonwealth of Israel, He's told you exactly what he wants you to do, and you don't give a hoot about his word. You don't care. You persist in your rebellion. You persist in your sin. And when he says he's told you, oh man, what is good, there are multiple passages where God has told him just that. In 1 Samuel 15, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. Now God is not nullifying the sacrificial system, but what he's telling these people, you can't buy your way out of this. You've got a problem. Your problem is you're not serious about me and my word. And when I direct you to do what you need to be doing, you don't take it seriously. You don't even respond to it. You're not in a right relationship with me. What you want to do right now is come up with all of this religious stuff that you think you can do to get you out of my anger. 
There are people that go through, I'm telling you, they go through religious motions. They go from one meeting to another meeting to another meeting to another seminar to another weekend retreat. They're involved in religious action. It doesn't affect their hearts. Gives them revved up emotionally. It doesn't affect their hearts. It doesn't change their minds. They go to prayer meetings, congregational meetings. They go to services. They give offerings. They're never really serious about obeying the word of God. They do all kinds of stuff. People do all sorts of religious stuff except face up to their own sin. That's what they won't do. They're too proud to do that. So Micah says, you want to know what you need to do? We'll make this real simple for you people of God. This has been your problem. You need to do justice. That's what he says in verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Not talk about justice. You need to do it. Because you're not doing it. You're not interested in what's right and just before me. That's what God's telling them. You don't care if you make right judgments that please me, that are righteous before me. You don't care about that at all. In fact, I've been monitoring my own people, and you don't seem to be concerned about what's just and right and true and righteous. God says, you want to know what you need to do? Face up to that. Own it. You have been basically living your life your way. You make decisions. You make judgments. You could care less whether or not those judgments are pleasing to me. So start there. Admit your failure. Start obeying the word. Do justice. You know, the politicians that use this verse to promote their political agenda, and they do, are actually the least likely to apply it. You cannot possibly support things that God says are abominable in his sight and then say, well, this is what we got to do. We got to do justice. To do justice, you have to do what's righteous in the sight of the Lord. You have to obey the word of God. They're not interested in that. Israel wasn't interested in that. So there's your first area that you have to address. You have to do justice. Secondly, you have to love kindness. You don't just show kindness. You have to love it. You know what these people loved? Your Bibles are open there to chapter 6 of Micah. Just drop down to verse 12. For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies and their tongue deceitful in their mouth. They didn't love kindness. They loved violence. They didn't care what it took to get more for them as long as they got it. They would take it by violent means. When God says you need to love kindness or mercy, you need to be having an attitude that actually breathes after and delights after demonstrating mercy to people, not hurting people. He's talking to his own people. If you get to a certain level where you have a certain amount like these rich men did, verse 12, they're mentioned, we'll see that, Lord willing, next Sunday night, those rich men, it's so easy for them 
to look down their long snoot noses and say, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not like those losers. And God says to his people, you want to know what you'd have to do? You have to face up to your sin here. Because you don't love mercy, and the word is has said, which speaks of being kind and merciful, you're not interested in that. You're just looking out for yourself. But certainly, as we've been seeing as we go through Romans, everything we have in our relationship with God is based on grace and mercy. And if we're right with him, that should affect us. And I think, as we saw this morning, it's just interesting to see that Paul challenges the people of God when they apply the grace gospel. He's talking to believers. We pointed that out this morning clearly. He's talking to believers. He said, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's part of the character of God, the mercies of God. He's a merciful God to us. He said, so you really want to deal with your problem that you have with each other? You better start applying that. And then he says, and this is the one that shatters them all, walk humbly with your God. Religion produces proud people. People that are real religious fanatics. I mean, they're proud of their religion. This is a world filled with proud people, especially in the world of religion. But God says, there's your problem. You're so proud, you don't humbly depend on me. You don't humbly depend on my word. You don't humbly live your life walking in a way that even pleases me. No, he said, I won't accept all that stuff. You can go through all the religious motions that you want, but until you humble yourself to me and my word, and he's addressing believers here. He's addressing believers here, or as we would say, the family of God here. He's addressing Israel. Until you humble yourself before me, and you begin to walk in fear and obedience to the word of God, I'm not lifting the chastisement from you. And the truth of the matter is, the more we humble ourselves to walk with the Lord, the happier we'll actually be. But you can know this, proud people... Proud, arrogant people are never right with God. Oh, they can have the religious aura, the religious look. I mean, they can be proud of themselves and proud of their religion. They never, never will have a close, intimate relationship with God. They'll never have a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Stay in pride, stay in arrogance, and you're going to miss out on what God would have done for you. And that's what he's telling his own people here. God says, I'm not pleased with your rituals. There was a place for those sacrifices. But he said, I'm not going to just allow you to go through a bunch of religious external motions, and then you're going to walk out of there saying, I'm right with God, when you've never even faced up to your sin. So the bottom line of this, what God was saying through Micah is, if you're on the verge of experiencing the chastisement of God, or if you think you perhaps are already under the chastisement of God, what you need to do, God says, is very simple. Admit the truth, confess it, and start obeying my word. There's the solution. Admit the truth about yourself, what you haven't been doing. Come to me and acknowledge that and start obeying me. And I will lift the judgment. That's what Micah 6, 8 
actually teaches. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word tonight. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. These are great challenges, Lord. We all need at different times and different situations to own up to what reality is in regard to you. We need to be open and honest in our relationship with you. And there are times when we just need to take a serious look at ourselves, take a serious look at the scriptures, and get lined up again. I pray you do that with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.